Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. You know, a wise pastor would just give an invitation after that song, but you fill in the blanks, all right? Last week, we looked at the unprecedented news as we saw the angel's announcement to to Joseph and Mary in Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1. Next week, we're going to look at the unlikely witnesses, but today, we're going to look at the unimaginable arrival, the arrival a few months ago, I got a phone call from Larry McEwen, who is a pastor of the church in Slidell, Louisiana. He came to preach for us right after Hurricane Harvey, and we took him out to dinner one day, and he took some pictures, and I was kind of anticipating I might get to see some of those pictures. Well, a few months ago, I got a phone call, and Larry said, Kevin, I want to make sure I've got your, your address right. This is the church address. That's the address. Okay. And then he called back later. Now, there's going to be a package coming. Watch for it. Okay. Then after the package came, he said, did you get the package? And I knew this was going to be an important package. And I got it, opened it up, and it was a picture that he had taken over on Fulton Harbor, one of our shrimp boats. Sunset, beautiful scene. You know how those pictures are. Well, he takes those photographs, blows them up, and then does something with acrylic or oil or something. And he makes them look like a painting. And then he autographed the thing, and then he put it in this special frame. And he sells those and shows those in art galleries in Louisiana. And he gave one to me. And I kind of thought something like that might be coming, but I didn't know for sure. But I sure was ready when he said, I need your address because something's coming your way. The arrival of that package did not let me down. It's hanging right into the hallway as you go into my study at home. Well, there's another arrival. It's even much more of a bigger deal than that. And it's the arrival of the Messiah that we read about just in these few verses in Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. And this first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in a cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. I don't know how many times I've read this story. I don't know how many times we've heard this story. For sure, almost every Christmas. I was praying this morning, going through this passage, and just saying, Lord, thank you so much for the, just the simplicity of the delivery of the Messiah, the simplicity of how that took place, and just the simple seven verses of the description here in this account of this unimaginable arrival. David Prince said this, that no other religion has a message like the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. There is no other religion that has this story that's so simply and incredibly powerfully told as Luke tells it. So what I want us to do today this, we've done this year after year, but I just want us to start by recalling the story. So number one, if you're taking notes, we're going to recall the story. You may know it. You could probably tell it. Uh, your kids could probably tell it, but I just want us to walk through. And as we do, just ask God just to, 
keep you mindful of the fact of how incredibly impossible is the choir saying about, but glorious this story really is. First of all, what happens in the story? Caesar issues a decree for a census. Look at verse one and two. Caesar issues this decree for a census. First of all, in those days, there's not a precise date. Luke has a way of, of just saying in those days later, when he talks about the birth of John the Baptist, he just says when, when it, or the, the ministry of John the Baptist, when the word came to John. He doesn't really give us specific dates. We'd love to have that, wouldn't we? But he just tells us in those days. So we know the time about when it took place, not a precise date. He says that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And this is Gas Octavius. Uh, later when he became Caesar, was given the name Augustus uh, around um, 27 BC, he reigned till about 14 AD uh, as, as emperor of Rome. So somewhere in that time frame as he ruled, we know at least by 4 BC that Jesus Christ was born. So this decree comes out from a Caesar that we know about. History documents it. And he says that the, uh, Luke writes it this way, that the whole empire should be registered. Now some translations say the whole Roman empire, the whole Roman world, but Roman isn't in the Greek. It's, it's implied by, by many translators as they write this. So much has been said and written and debated about those decrees, those taxations, that registration that took place. Those kinds of things happen periodically through Rome. Warren Wiersbe says it was every 14 years. Other scholars say it was just the, the, the manner of the Roman way of doing things. We do know that during Augustus, the whole world did get, the whole Roman Empire was taxed. Whether it's referring to this one or not, we don't know. But we know that at that time, this is what occurred for Mary and Joseph, that there was a, a, a taxation, a registration that they were to take part in. So the first registration, it says, took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Um, someone said this, Caesar and Quirinius were ruling, but God was in control. We have these specific, clear, historical figures who can be documented, and, and Luke mentions, just so you know, this is when it took place in those days. He issues a decree. We'll talk more about how God uses people like that. He issues a decree for this census, this registration, this taxation. Secondly, Mary and Joseph make the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You know the story, right? It's very clear right there. The Bible says, Joseph and Mary, let's go on, go on to verse four there. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David. Joseph and Mary make this trip, probably some trans, uh, scholars say 85, 90 miles, depending on which way you, you travel through Samaria to get there from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They're going down from north to south, but the Bible writer Luke says they went up, Joseph went up, just because of, of elevation, they just went up. Uh, so that's how he describes their, the trip that they made. Probably taking many days for them to go, some feel like they could travel about 20 miles a day, uh, with Mary being pregnant like she was, they may have moved much slower, but they make this trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Uh, the Jews stressed that the, the Jews were to keep their ancestral link very clear, uh, that you knew exactly who your parents were and who their parents were and who their parents were. So it was important for Joseph to go back to his ancestral home. Nazareth is his hometown. He's from Nazareth, but his ancestral hometown where his ancestors were from was Bethlehem. Does that make sense? So great-great-grandpa, so forth, is from Bethlehem. So that's where Joseph goes to be 
to be a part of this census, to be registered to his ancestral home. I was reading, uh, just thinking about Mary and Joseph, this, this young couple. Some feel like Joseph may have been much older, we don't know. But we, don't, we do know that Mary in this culture would have been very young. For them, is in their poverty to, to experience this, to, to make this trip. There's, a, there's a, a scale of rating stress called the Holmes Ray Stress Indicator. And I went through that scale and picked out some things that, that others, the others have looked at that said possibly Mary and Joseph went through these things. So I'm just going to, they have a thing called a LCU, a life change unit. So they, they uh, assign a life change unit to a different stressor in, in your life. All right. And by the way, they say over 300 is major stress. You're going to get sick. Something major is going to happen. You're gonna, it's going to be a health issue. I, I just wrote down some things. Marital separation, 65 stress points. They went through that, didn't they? There was this, this anticipation of possible divorce. A marriage, which they were about to have, 50 stress points. A reconciliation of marriage, 45. So all of those took place all at once, right? Joseph thinks about divorcing her. Then he, he makes this commitment that he's, she's, they're going to be husband and wife. Pregnancy, 40 stress points. Adding a new family member, 39 stress points. A change in financial state, 38 stress points. Trouble with the in-laws. I'm just assuming that may have happened, all right? 29 stress points. How'd you like to be Joseph's family? And he says, this Mary, who I'm engaged to, remember we said engagement, they really didn't come together as husband and wife. They were just referred to for about a year or so during that engagement period. For Joseph to go to his parents and say, this Mary, you're going to marry her? She's been unfaithful to you. So I'm, I'm assuming some trouble with the in-laws. Change in living conditions, 25 points. Change in working conditions, 20 points. Change in residency, 20 points. They're adding up, folks. Change in church activities or worship activities, 19 points. Change in social activities, 18. Change in sleep habits, you think that happened? 16 stress points. Now this one's interesting. A minor violation of law, 11 stress points. Mary had been known as engaged to Joseph, but they hadn't come together as husband and wife. Literally, under Jewish law, she was guilty of being an adulteress. And we talked about that story last week. Go back and listen to it if you need to. All of those add up to 435 LCUs or stress points. So I'm thinking about this couple, Mary and Joseph. We have them. We sing. And as we're singing the Christmas carols, I, I leaned over to Kelly. It talks about Jesus not crying. So I think he probably cried. Talking about Mary and Joseph just being this perfect little couple. But they went through all of this. So that's just to remind us of how real the story was. He comes from the family line of David. That's where the, the house of, of David, Bethlehem, and then ultimately the Messiah would come through, through as he was born there, the house of David. We're really not told why Mary went with him to be registered along with his life, wife Mary to be registered in, in verse five there. Um, she didn't have to be there. It was the men that would go to register. I'm thinking she probably wanted to get away from Nazareth and all the nyanya that was going on there, right? Can you imagine? Just think about that. See, we know the story from the perspective of Joseph and Mary that we read last week because the angel said, this is what's happening. God's in this. The Holy Spirit has overshadowed you, Mary. You're pregnant with, with, with my son, Mary, the son of God. And Joseph is told by an angel, it's okay, this is what's happening. They know this, but the community probably didn't get it. So I'm sure that's one reason why Mary went with him. The Bible says there she was engaged to him. And was pregnant. Again, remember we said that they hadn't come together as husband and wife yet because that's how that, those arrangements were. Mary and Joseph make the trip. Thirdly, it's a simple story, isn't it? Mary delivers the baby Jesus and places him in a manger.
Verse 6 and 7, just I'm going to read them again. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in snugly cloth, snugly in cloth, and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. When the time had come for her to give birth, she gave birth. Now, how would you like it if somebody told your story that way? About one of your grandkids. Oh, yeah, uh, my, my daughter was pregnant and she gave birth to a child. That isn't the way you tell the story, is it? You tell all about it. You're excited. There's anticipation, but it's just so simple the way the Lord delivers that truth to us while they were there. Again, we're not told how long. We've, we've grown up in our, in our telling of the Christmas story to think that it happened immediately. It was urgent that they had to get there. We don't know that. It could have been right away. It could have been days longer. But while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth to her son, and she gave birth to him. It's interesting. She gave birth to her firstborn. That's a just a, a note to us that Mary and Joseph had other kids. They did come together as husband and wife. They did consummate the marriage. They did, there were other brothers to Jesus. So he's just the first of, of others. So some have said that they didn't. That's not true. And like this, they wrapped, you, they wrapped him snugly in cloth. That's literally the word swaddled. So we know some other translations say swaddling cloth. That in that culture, they would wrap the baby up real tight to make sure the limbs stayed straight and that they were protected and and there's, we know this is you swaddle babies, you wrap them up tight. There's security in that, isn't there? Something about being wrapped up and, and that, that security. And so that's the way they wrapped up Jesus. And laid him, this translation that I read, laid him in a feeding trough. We, we know that that word manger, literally that's what it is. It's a, a feeding trough. Um, most of our, our manger scenes have a, a small wooden trough. We, it, it may have been a, a stone trough that was carved out of stone. If it was a kind of a partial cave that they were in or even a, a, a place where animals were kept, there would have been carved in stone a trough, but that manger is where he was laid because there was no room for them at the lodging place. Now, we grew up with, there was no room for them in the inn, and we've had stories about going to the innkeeper, knocking on the door, and the innkeeper said there's no room, and, and that's a great story, but we don't, really don't have that in Scripture. We just have there was no place for them in the, the lodging place. And a lot of speculation as to what it was. Was it a barn? Uh, was it a cave? Because many barns would have been like a cave. Probably the two best explanations were that this place where they, uh, where they laid the baby, where, where Jesus was born, was one of those add-on parts to a room. There would be a, a family room and then a side room to that that kind of stepped down. And that's where the animals were kept. So it was really part of the house, but an add-on. And in there would have been a manger. So some say that they, there just wasn't place in Joseph's home. Some have speculated that maybe that, that it was it's, uh, just a family home that they kind of had the back room there where the animals were. That's where he was born. Others say it might have been, and this is one that I think probably has most merit, a caravan a, a caravan place where the caravan stayed. It, it fits the narrative of the stories. We talk about the animals and we talk about the, the, the shepherds coming to see to see the baby Jesus as the caravans would travel. And there would have been a, probably many caravans during this taxation. There wouldn't be many places for them to stay, but there'd be like a, I, I think about a hostel today, the same kind of thing where groups would stay in. And maybe there would be a place off to the side where the, the people could come and they would have brought their animals and they would have been there. That's probably what we had there. So I don't know. We just know that where he was placed, it was a feeding trough. And we know it was simple and it was lowly and it was humble You know, the story has become so familiar that we're desensitized to the awe and the wonder of it. I was praying, Lord, help me to communicate the wonder of this story 
Mark Buchanan is a pastor who writes, and he, he shares about a Christmas Eve that he spent in Bethlehem. So I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read his story to you, okay? Because you've got the picture of Bethlehem, Silent Night, Holy Night. We've got that picture. This is his testimony. He said, I spent last Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with my son in Bethlehem. When I told people I was doing that, their typical response was, that would be magical. It wasn't. It was just scary. Bethlehem is in a Palestinian territory. It is bound by massive prison-like wall and constantly under the watchful eye of the Israeli and Palestinian military police who stand ready to swoop down at the first sign of trouble and squelch it with brute and even lethal force. He says in Nativity Square on Christmas Eve, the police in groups of five or six shook down my son three times. And on Christmas Day, we were caught in the middle of a street riot. Stones were flying past our heads. Tires set ablaze. The police dispersed with tear gas. He says, it forever changed my mind, my image of the birthplace of Jesus. That line from the song, for instance, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, jars hard against my experience of the not-so-still and little town. Of course, I visited it more than 2,000 years after the events that make it famous, and much has changed, or has it? Perhaps, rather, my idyllic and romantic imaginings of ancient Bethlehem, nurtured by my 50-plus years of exposure to Western myth-making, obscured the reality that Bethlehem in Jesus' day was much like it is today, a violent, suspicious, dangerous place, ready to turn away the very one who could save it. I like that. That gets me back to where it really was that night. Well, we recall the story, maybe, maybe learning something about how difficult it was, but I want to make application today and recognize some principles. All right, you ready to do that? Recognize some principles. First of all, God's plan is fulfilled through the most unlikely people. God's plan is is fulfilled through the most unlikely people. Just in verse 1, Caesar Augustus. Then in verse 2, Quirinius, the governor. These Roman rulers and leaders are used by God to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to be a fulfillment of 100 years of prophecy. God uses the most unlikely people. I thought about the Old Testament and how King Nebuchadnezzar, King Cyrus, how they were used in in the life of Daniel to bring about so much of of, of biblical history, and they didn't even know it. I think of the Assyrian kings, how God used them to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. They didn't even know it. The Bible says that those kings were, were, were instruments in the hands of God. Caesar Augustus, man, that name... It's a histor- he's a historical figure. You read about him in history, but he's just a footnote here in a way, saying, oh, by the way, he's the Roman emperor who God used to bring about the real important thing that day. God uses the most unlikely people. Think about Mary and Joseph. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but the, the, when we talk about the shepherds, the unlikely witnesses, uh, how, how Mary and Joseph were just the simplest, humblest, poor couple. Right there, God's using the most unlikely people to bring a king of the Jews into the world. I'm going to move on. 
God's plan is fulfilled through most unlikely people. We'll talk about that more next week. God's agenda began long before we were there. God's agenda began long before we were here. It began long before Joseph and Mary were there. As you read the story, you read that Joseph goes to his hometown because he was, in verse four, because he was of the house and family line of David. Before Joseph comes on the scene, God had already instituted that the lineage of David would be the line that the Messiah would come through. God was at work in all of that. Read the the, uh, narrative accounts in Matthew and Luke as we have this description of the genealogies leading to the Messiah. God was at work back there. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I think the, the, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God was at work. He was sending his son even before Mary and Joseph came on the scene. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, if God controls our lives, then the events of history only help fulfill the will of God. I like that. I think about the testimony we just saw of this aerospace uh, medical uh, uh, doctor and, and how, how God took his life and, and even though he was fulfilling his plan for his life, God rearranged it to use him for his ultimate glory. God, if God's in control of my life, he's going to use me the way he wants. So God's going to be at work long before I arrive on the scene. Years ago, I wrote a, a, a life history and in one of the questions that I was asked to write on was, name all the people who've impacted you and influenced you in your Christian walk. And, and I'd forgotten, and I began to write all these names of people, family members and friends and pastors and Sunday school teachers. And a couple of those, those Sunday school teachers, I couldn't remember their name, but I can remember sitting in that classroom and hearing the story and, and being loved by them and to think about how God used all those people in my life. And I look back on my life, and I thank God for that. God's agenda started before you showed up. God knew you would be here before you came here. James Dobson shares a story about a great-grandfather of his named George McCluskey. His great-grandfather prayed every morning from 11 to noon for his kids, his grandkids, and future generations. This is what he prayed, that they would come to know Christ and that they would live lives to glorify him. He even said that he got a promise from God that his generations that he prayed for would come to know the Lord. And this is what Dobson writes. Toward the end of his life, George McCluskey, his great-grandfather, announced that God made him a promise. Every member of our four generations of this family would become Christians. Dobson writes, that promise has been working itself out in remarkable ways. By the time I came along, every member of our family, from great-grandfather to me, had not only accepted Christ, but he had become a minister. That's powerful. Before he was even born, this great-grandfather was praying for him that God would bring him to Christ and God would use him. Long before we're born, long before Joseph and Mary showed up, God was at work. I think that's a great principle. God's been up to something in your life and you wonder about the circumstances of your life and how you got here and how everything happened to, to put you either in Rockport or in the job you're in or the ministry you're in or in this church or wherever you worship. God's using all that. He's at work. Just submit to that. And number three, let her see if you're taking notes. Third principle here, God's timing is always perfect. God's timing is always perfect. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. While they were there, God's timing is always perfect. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this, when the 
Time came to completion. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul writes about it this way in Galatians, that Jesus came at the, the perfect time. When it was time, this whole story is orchestrated by God. I made some notes about how God had been preparing the world Not just that he was at work before Joseph and Mary, but how God prepared the world for his timing to be perfect. This this event took place in Luke chapter 2 during what was called the Pax Romana or the the Peace of Rome, Roman peace, where most of that known world was at peace. Roads were built connecting cities. That's significant. There was a common language, well, actually two common languages in Rome, the Latin, which the Romans spoke, and the Greek, which is what, what Alexander introduced. So you have these... Two common languages through that whole part of the, of the known world. During that time, philosophies had been taught and were growing empty. The, the Aristotles and people like that, all these philosophers, people had embraced them, but had seen that those philosophies were powerless to change lives and they were waiting for something new. Mystery religions were popular and they left people hungry. Synagogues had preached monotheism, that there's just one God, and that prepared people for this. I I ran across another interesting statistic that that shows how God's timing is perfect. This is right before a worldwide population explosion. William Lane Craig, in a debate with an atheist, talked about how Christ's arrival was at the perfect time. This is what he said. Human beings have existed for thousands of years on this planet before Christ's coming. But what's really crucial here is not the time involved, rather, it's the population of the world. The Population Reference Bureau estimates that the number of people who ever lived on this planet is 105 billion people. They estimate that at the time of Jesus' birth, only 2% of them had been born. It's 2% of the whole world population of 105 billion people. So what he says is God's timing couldn't have been more perfect. Christ showed up just before the exponential explosion in the world's population. So, pretty cool. God's about to bring about this world population explosion. He puts Messiah right in the mix of it. He puts this peace in the known world. He builds roads so that the gospel can be taken easily from city to city and says, boom, there you go. Watch what happens. God's timing is always perfect. I love that. And lastly, God often uses the lowly and humble God often uses the lowly and humble. We talked about that with Mary and Joseph as unlikely people. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one can boast in his presence. Does that not describe the birth of Christ? Wow. I came across an article by John Ortberg, and in it he shares six ways the birth of Jesus changed the world. And in that six ways, I just pulled three out that illustrate this truth that God uses a lowly and humble the first one is the, the issue of humility. In the ancient world, it was not a virtue to be humble. It was a virtue to be, to be proud and to be boastful. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and suddenly this, this thing of humility became a virtue. What about compassion? Jesus' compassion for the poor and the sick led to the establishment of so many um, institutions, hospitals, 
They're named the Good Samaritan and the Good Shepherd. Why? Because Jesus brought compassion. And then forgiveness is the third thing I looked at. In the ancient world, virtue, it was a virtue to, to punish your opponent. If somebody wronged you, you didn't forgive them. You, you got them. You got back at them. Jesus came and talked about loving your enemies instead of punishing your enemies. God used the birth of the Messiah, not just to bring salvation to the world, but to transform the world. A simple story, an unimaginable arrival, but God alone could get the glory for this one. There's a statue in London's Trafalgar Square of Lord Nelson. It's way up high on this real tall pillar. Nobody can really see the details. About 40 years ago, someone made a, a, a replica of the statue of Nelson at the top of the pillar and put it down at eye level so people could see it. And this is what they said. We want people at eye level to see the detail of this statue. And I thought, that's, that's what God's doing at Christmas. That's what God did at Christmas. He comes down from the heights of heaven in the person of Jesus so that we can know him at eye level. Do you know him? He did all this for you so that you could know him. Let's pray.